Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Welcome to the Diversity Remix. I'm Charlie Echeverry. And I'm Jesus Chavez. Today's show is brought to you by our friends at Take Me Home. What is Take Me Home, you might ask? Well, Take Me Home is a new docu-series, very, really interesting uh, documentary project that invites the viewer to a groundbreaking new kind of village that's being made on the outskirts of Austin, Texas. It's just you're from Texas. We have something to say about this. I'm not from Texas. I, I lived in Texas. You always say this. <laughs> It's like the same thing. But um, the, this, this film is really, really interesting. It basically features the story of a homeless advocacy and pioneer guy named Alan Graham. And he and his friends are building a really innovative 27-acre master plan community of tiny homes. Remember that whole tiny home craze? Uh, that combined with RVs. And it's designed to basically – the thesis that he has is it it's connects people with one another. That's how to solve this idea of homelessness is by bringing people together in communities. So he's actually doing it. And our friends, the filmmakers, um, are documenting this experience. The filmmakers are Sean Shavelin, David Kang, and TJ Burden who have produced a number of uh, very highly and critically acclaimed uh, documentary films. But they're documenting this whole experience. Now, they're in the process of getting this film made. So what they need from people who might be listening and interested in this concept, it's really beautiful, is to go to their website, which is takemehome.us. That's takemehome.us and find out about the project. They're looking for partnerships, potential underwriting, et cetera. They already have a distribution deal in place. They just need uh, the finishing touches, partners, and underwriting to get the film made. But these guys are award-winning documentary filmmakers. It's an incredible concept. Take me home. This idea of a solution for homelessness. And by the way, at least I remind everybody that homelessness impacts obviously a lot of people in the U.S., but it disproportionately impacts uh, communities and people of color. So it's something that we're very much uh, behind. So check them out. Take me home. Dot U.S. And this episode is also brought to you by Black Brown. What is Black Brown? Well, it happens that we know the uh, people who run it, Jesus. That's uh, you and I. Um, but Black Brown is a strategic advisory that's really focused on helping companies turn diversity into a profit center. So what we do is we work with brands and companies to help design strategies that bring diversity into the organization where it counts, right where the magic happens in the center of the organization, not only treating diversity as an HR function or a marketing function, but really integrating it into everything companies do. All right, Jesus. So we are speaking about a very interesting topic. Um, who speaks for diverse Americans? What does it mean to be diverse? And how do diverse people vary from one another? We're going to talk about a number of things. And just to kind of set the table, um, before we go into our deep dive, we obviously had some big news last week with uh, Kamala. And it is Kamala, by the way. C-O-M-A, comma. And then La, because I was pronouncing it wrong as well, like many other people. But Kamala Harris uh, is now the presumptive nominee for the Democratic ticket. And, you know, she's very quickly become a representative of uh, obviously black people in the country. But and she has been for before, but just has now been brought back up into the limelight, a representative of black and Indian populations because she's a she's a mixed uh, uh, race, mixed parentage. And but you know we know that Asian being Asian and being black in the U.S. are different things. So we're going to take a look at some of that and what the implications of that uh, are. We're also going to look at um, this idea of even needing spokespeople for diverse communities anymore. Do we do we need that? Do we still uh, you know do we need those exact same strategies from the past? And all and also does media properly represent the diversity that's within each of these different 
groups um, that make up the diversity landscape, or do we just get a monochromatic view from these different uh, outfits? So, lot to cover, lot to get through. But um, I thought we'd uh, we'd tee it up with taking a look at what it means to be diverse. Jesus, what do you think? Well, I think going back to what we we say, we're going to start with Kamala Harris, um, and just to be extra clear, is she is the presumptive nominee for the vice president role. Um, yeah, my bad. Uh, ticket. But uh, with her, I think specifically, I think a couple of things. One is just having this, where really is a historic moment. I think regardless of how you feel specifically about her as a candidate, it really is a historic moment of having the first time um, both a black and South Asian uh, woman uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a vice president uh, type of role, at least nominee. Um, I think means a lot in terms of representation mm-hmm. um, for, for the community. And it, I think one of the interesting things here that we talk about is Many times when we speak about diversity, uh, even for us, you know, we're, our organization is called Black Brown. We do tend to focus much more on the Black Brown experience, which tends to be sort of quoted around African American and Latinos. Um, what makes I think Kamala interesting is the fact that she is um, obviously multiracial, um, and, and and her background I think is interesting because when you think about the diverse experience between Black Americans and Asian Americans, while they both fall under the diverse category. It is a pretty different experience. Yeah, it is. As we're going to find out. By the way, I just just a little trivia because I actually looked it up. the The category, the first that she creates, is the first woman of color on a major party ticket as VP. Because there was a candidate in the early fifties that ran on for the Progressive Party, um, a woman named um, Charlotte. I'm going to find her name in a second, but I, I looked it up. Anyway, she's the first African American VP candidate, but it was for a non-major political party. So right. the, the the designation that Kamala gets is that she's a major party woman of color female vice presidential candidate, which is a big deal. I think it is a, a super big deal. It's I think the response to it has been a little bit, has been interesting in the sense that many people have uh, called it sort of the expected choice. But I think that I think most people would agree is, is someone that was sort of at the forefront of, of conversation as a possible running mate for Joe Biden. Um, what I find really interesting is when I hear people say that was the safe choice. Mm. And, and it's kind of interesting to hear people say call something safe when it's the first time that it ever happens, right? Like those two thoughts don't seem to coincide, yeah. right? How well, do you, you think both that have the safe? first yeah. woman of color be basically the you know nominee for vice president and also be the safe choice? Do you like, think it's in relation to um, Elizabeth Warren and the other people who are in contention, uh, Susan Rice? Uh, Tulsi Gabbard, folks. Actually, Tulsi, I don't think was in contention ever seriously. No, she was. No, she wasn't. Do you no. think it's safe in relation to those things? Because I think that might have something to do with it. I have no idea why. Why someone would call it safe? To be yeah. honest, um, I think expected. Sure, as someone that was uh, was early on in, in contention. Uh, but I think regardless of whether whether it's safe or whether it's it's um, uh, the expected choice, it's really what she represents. I think she represents a whole new generation of diversity um, for the, the the U.S. and and I think it's a it's a big political moment. Now, what's interesting about her specifically is her ideology doesn't necessarily align with uh, many of young, diverse people. Because I would actually argue that someone like Elizabeth Warren may actually would align a little bit better, even though she is not a person of color. Yeah, she's right. So this is where you start getting into that dynamic of having someone that, even if they are uh, a person of color mm-hmm. or brown, right, it doesn't necessarily mean that their philosophy is going to directly align with. What is, at least especially young people uh, believe in, especially diverse young people. She's kind of, you know, I was going to say she's sort of damned if she does, damned if she doesn't in that sense, right? And to that, I mean, politically, yeah, because I think the more progressive uh, ends of the of the party are, generally speaking, sort of dissatisfied with her, right? She's a prosecutor. She's got right. a long career in history and sort of, you know, prosecuting, as prosecutors do, prosecuting people for crimes, a lot of them allegedly not necessarily high-level crimes, putting people in mm-hmm. jail for crimes that, you know, they shouldn't be, et cetera, et cetera. So there's people that are, like, decrying that. Um, but then on the other side, there's also people, you know, on the other side of the spectrum saying, oh, this is – maybe that's where a lot of the safe choice commentary is coming from. That's like, well, of course you're going to pick somebody of color. You couldn't not pick somebody of color and maybe she falls in that category of who knows what she is, but we know she fa- fits into that category and that's the reason you picked her. So it sort of disqualifies her for the other legitimate reasons that she might be in that role. Yeah, I think to the point of, of who speaks for diverse Americans, what makes someone like her really interesting is that depending on who you're speaking with, she's, over, she's either super liberal or super conservative. Yeah, true. All within the Democratic Party. True. But 
And even with the comment you made about her um, her record in terms of prosecuting, one of the things that I know she got a lot of heat about was, and, I, and I'm not sure if this is when she was uh, a DA or when, when this was, but she uh, at one point chose not to pursue the death sentence for someone that had killed an officer, a police officer, right? And that's something that was seen as very controversial. And then she also, of course, gets a lot of heat for heavily prosecuting, to your point, crimes that would not be considered such a... She's also getting a little bit of heat just on the ethnic divide, right? Because there's some commentary, and it's something she's lived with. It's not brand new. She's lived with before. Same with uh, former President Barack Obama, that she's not black enough because she you know, has an, a South Asian mom, right? And her father is a Jamaican immigrant. He's not like an a, a African-American in the more traditional sense. So she's gotten some of that. But then on the other side, she gets the, the, the same heat in terms of her, her, Asian, her Asian background, her Asian... South Asian, um, you know, kind of extraction. So she's she's an easy target. You got to admit from a variety of different places. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't make kind, it right. It's the kind of thing that I think no matter who you put in that in that role is going to get probably nitpick one way or the other. I mean, that's kind of the reality of the political yeah. time that we're living. Um, uh, but I love the fact that that she is nominated. Um, I have to say, from a personal uh, position, having a biracial daughter who is half black. Uh, being able to share with her that for the first time you have a woman uh, of color in that kind of position or has the opportunity to be in that kind of position mm-hmm. is really great to be able to share with her, especially now at an, eight, at an age of eight years old where she's now starting to really understand what that means, mm-hmm. right? So the part that she actually absolutely does represent is this notion that as a woman of color, you can achieve this type of thing. You kind of get to those kind of roles. And while... You know, you could, I guess you could always say that before. It's nothing like actually being able to show it because it's, it's not really real until it happens. So I think from that standpoint, regardless of, once again, the division about maybe her political background or even her yeah. her uh, ethnic background, it actually doesn't matter to me as much. More to what she represents is this hope for what the future can be. And more importantly, a role model for young, especially young uh, girls uh, of color that they can look forward to and, and something they can, they can strive for. And we know the real power of seeing yourself reflected because we've been in businesses and created content and worked in the space for a while to know that that actually does perform better, drives more engagement. So the reality of it is, is we as human beings do when we visualize or see, they even say in coaching, right? Visualize yourself doing it. When you can actually see somebody looks like you kind of comes from your background doing that thing, it does make it much more real and much, you know, to, 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 to enable you to strive for the same thing, especially when it's the first time, when it's the first time that's yeah. happened, it really does stick out. And both of us share that in the sense of having, um, you know, biracial daughters, mine's mm-hmm. older than yours, obviously, but I get that whole idea very much so in terms of like, it really does make it real. You know, and, and I think related to this, is we, we talked in the past and, and there's been a lot of press about this as it relates to representation, especially like in media, we think about content and and rep- representation across the board, right? I know we, we've discussed diversity quite a bit. And part of sort of like step one of better diversity, is, it starts with representation and representation that can maybe more easily be measured, which sort of tends to fall in that category of ethnicity, of gender, sexuality, kind of ac- across the board. Um, so from that standpoint, to, to your point, being able to have that as an example, I think is it, is it goes a really long way to sort of open up the aperture for what opportunities are really out there uh, for young girls to to go after and, and pursue, and really for all diverse people in general, right? I mean, having that, uh, and one in many ways, actually, obviously Barack Obama sort of was able to open that up. It was still very much in the line of being another sort of male president, right? So at least from that standpoint, it opened up the aperture for diversity in general, but but didn't necessarily do that, uh, uh, especially for women. Well, make no mistake, there's a lot of people I think on both sides of the spectrum that think that you know that's what we've effectively done by nominating. Kamala is sort of nominating that next president potentially because yeah, of all I mean, of, that's all, yeah. you know, I mean, all the joking aside, right? Even sure. Biden hasn't committed to a second term, right? So, which is fairly unusual. So I think it is a very, very important, I mean, not that all VP choices aren't important. They are, but I'm saying no, this they're, isn't they're a different, they're, it's a different league. They complement well yeah. most of the time. I think what makes this one different is probably the very first time where the, the VP choice, like, plays a major, yeah, major like, role of agreed. what is the future of the party. Agreed. Where it's definitely not the case, you know, and look, for Mike Pence, regards to how you feel about him, no one thought of Mike Pence as he's being picked as VP because he's the future of the Republican Party. Not at all. It's yeah. a compliment, obviously, the ticket for, for Donald Trump. But on that theme as it relates to representation, yeah. which is I think what we were kind of going with, with with Kamala Harris and using her as an example, when we think about 
representation amongst different groups of, of diverse people. There is some actually really interesting uh, data out there, uh, specifically within our industry, in the advertising industry, right? So we wanted to sort of talk about this a little bit in terms of uh, there was a study that was put out um, where it basically measured what level of diverse representation was among advertising agencies, right? And this kind of across the board. The big holding companies. Big holding companies, yeah. yeah. And we found it super, super interesting, right? So to Fasc- kind of give fascinating the, the, in a ba- in a bad way, but but brings it, but brings up a lot of really interesting questions, especially with respect to that whole Asian African American div- uh, divide. Yeah. So just to kind of go through the numbers really quick, here's what the study showed, right? And and let's compare population versus representation in industry industry as a whole. And I think as a double click, we can even look at what is that representation within the executive level of those same holding groups, right? So uh, how we broke out for Asians, they represent about six percent of the U.S. population. Within that, the industry, uh, it's about 18.1% what the representation was for, for Asian. So, so, so obviously over so, 2x. So 6% of the US, 18% of the yeah, advertising, yeah, marketing yeah. industry. Correct. Okay. At the executive level, they represent uh, over 10%, right? So definitely over representation as it relates to Asian population within the advertising, marketing sort of, uh, of industry and even at the executive level. Uh, once again, six versus 18. For black Americans, uh, or blacks, uh, not just black Americans, uh, thir- about 13% population in the U.S., the representation in the industry was less than 7%, so 6.8. And what was actually sad to see is when you look at the executive level, that was only 2.4%. So big, big drop-off in terms of representation of blacks within that executive level of, 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 of this industry. For Latinos, uh, population overall, 18%. Within the industry, uh, about 6.3%, and then at the executive level, about 3.6%. So pretty big drop-off um, there in terms of re- representation. And then for white, uh, non-Latino, uh, for the youth population, about 62%. Within the industry overall, 66 a little bit uh, close to 67%, so pretty close to what it would be, uh, about on par. But when you look at this relative to the executive level, uh, white non-Latino represented about almost 83% of the executive roles within within the industry. So your your response to that, Charlie, when you when you hear that. I definitely have some thoughts on this because I got there's so much of it. We we we've been steeped in this industry for for decades now and so we we can speak to it from a firsthand experience, but it definitely does open up some very interesting and very controversial questions. And one of them is this, you know, we have used the idea of representation in positions of authority and power, let's say, as a benchmark for like actually moving the business world in the right direction, right? It's been the root of the diversity, equity, and inclusion movement. It's at the heart of every kind of HR, um, you know, clinic or conference or whatever that you, that, that you'll go to. And, you know, I agree with that. If the inside is like the outside and if your business looks like your consumers, you're probably going to be more successful. But here's the thing. When you look at these stats, you see basically, you know, pretty significant over-index, over-representation of Asian, over-representation of white, and radical under-representations of African-American and under-representations of Latino. And it's not even close. I mean, there's like a 3X in some cases in the in the Asian uh, cohort and a, you know, whatever, call it a, a negative, uh, you know, if you're looking at it on an index basis, it's like, a 40, right? In terms of, of, or even lower for, for black and, and, and Asian. So yeah, there's like uncomfortable questions, which is, you know, are, are the Asian population has always been lumped in, even though that's a bad word to say in this multicultural discussion. But if you're using representation as a benchmark, right? It's tricky to put them in that same spot because it, across every rung, not just entry level management, executive level, every single rung, there's a big over-representation in the advertising industry. So what does that mean? Like, yeah, what I mean, do we do I guess about just that? from the data alone, you can say when you look at underrepresented communities, you probably wouldn't include or shouldn't include Asians within, especially within this industry. That may not be the case. Right. We're not looking across the board, but especially within this industry, that may not be the case. But I'm curious, in terms of, of the why that happens, and I'm less concerned about the representation on the, on the Asian side, but more let's talk about the Black Latino underrepresentation. Why do you think that, that is. Well, I think that's the case, that we have such low representation in the industry as a whole. Yeah. And also uh, within, the, obviously within the executive level, which, which to me is more of a function of 
if you if you're way underrepresented to begin with, if you think of it as a pipeline, yeah, of people growing up in their careers, it's not a surprise that the number is even lower, right? Yeah. Because very few actually make it all the way up. Well, what do you think? It's a great that? it's a great question. I mean, I think look, some of it, I, like anything that's complex, it's probably had a multifaceted answer, right? But I mean, I the first things that come to mind for me are things like education, things like um, you know, family cohesion. I actually should have this stat, but I don't about Asian um, families. But I can tell you that you know the the the, the family cohesion. Um, rates for African-American, for Latinos, and even for whites, frankly, over the course of the last 50 years have gone into into negative territory, right? So I think something on the order of 70% of African-American kids are born and live in single, uh, you know, family homes, 50 some odd percent of Latinos and, you know, 20 some odd percent of whites. I don't know what the Asian figure is, but that to me is the first place I go is, is how is the family construct and how is that play a role in this? The second one that I go to is uh, education. Right. I got, I, I look at it education and go, or, or, and, you know, the socioeconomic realities of where people actually live as how are they coming into these jobs, into these right. tracks, let's call it, that kind of get you into these things. Um, and then, you know, there's maybe other considerations, right? Like, um, generational, uh, impact, right? Um, the Asian community has been, for de- not just recently, but decades and decades and decades, been very entrepreneurial, right? And mm-hmm. has, you know, built businesses and, you know, created communities. And of course, African American and Hispanics have too, but they have different challenges that may impact how that works. So, I, I mean, my answer is I don't really know, but yeah. I got to look at some of those, bi- those big factors to determine that. The point that I'm asking is like, you know, the uncomfortable question is, do, are Asians in that same, you know, category of, Populations that were, that 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 have this additional these additional considerations that typically happen with diverse communities, right? Yeah. Well, I think in terms of representation, if we're using the example around advertising and marketing agencies, then the, the answer is pretty simple, which is no. There is not an underrepresented group. But do you think that's an uncontroversial thing what you just said? Because I don't think it is. I think it's very controversial. I think it, it could definitely be controversial. Honestly, without seeing this data, I wouldn't have known that was the case. Yeah, either would right. I. That's so why that's, I think that's, it's that's also just just not knowing. Yeah. What I was going to say is that when you think about, and this is the only industries that I know, when you think about representation in entertainment and media, then there you definitely see massive underrepresentation from the Asian community. I mean, the fact that. Having a hit Hollywood film that was a primarily Asian cast, it's a big deal, is news breaking. Mm-hmm. That sort of speaks to massive underrepresentation. So I think in this one, it probably depends on the industry quite a bit uh, in terms of where it's specific for that group is going to be over or underrepresented. The other thing I wanted to ask you, though, which is going back to Black and Latinos, specifically within advertising and marketing, is how much of a role do you think the fact that they are multicultural agencies or there's been work specifically geared to talking to black That's and brown a super people great question. actually contributed to this and Asian slow position because I mean, then the, 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 the bad thing about thinking about it that way yeah. is sort of good and bad, right? The good is that there are specific marketing needs that need to be addressed that require people of color to fail to talk to those black and brown people. The problem with that is that if you only think about hiring black and brown people to only fill the needs that are specifically or the roles that are specifically geared towards marketing to black and brown people, then you're missing the point of actually leveraging diverse voices thought into all of the work that you do. So I'm, I'm curious about that specific point. I, look, I think that there's a time and place for everything. And I think the time and place of the dedicated sort of multicultural shop or um, – you know, company, I think has, has, has waned or has frankly come and gone. I think that in the beginning, you need those very specialized centers of excellence to drive awareness and attention to things that are ascending or up and coming that people just haven't gotten to yet. And that the kind of the fabric of the organization hasn't yet integrated. But then there comes a point where that becomes sort of the majority or the, or the greater part of what the opportunity is. And if the business hasn't yet incorporated that, there's something else that's, that's, um, that's a miss, right? So I think there comes a point where they become self-defeating. Having these very specialized shops begets specialized budgets, 
begets this kind of different process, a different way of thinking about it, and in a way kind of creates the lack of integration that we at the same time complain about. So it's a very tricky place. I think it did work, but I think the time has passed. Mm -hmm. And I think now the move is about how do you actually bring that diverse insight, that diverse understanding into your organization, set the KPIs, by the way, set the salary, set the objectives and the milestones to achieve them. That works better in my mind than sort of outsourcing that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think the, the, the thing that is interesting here is that when we talk about underrepresentation and just in what we were discussing, there's also the potential about overcorrecting and what are the issues that happen there when you try to too prescriptively try to solve for that problem. So one example of that was also recent news that just came out. Uh, about Yale University, right? So the Justice Department recently found... Oh, yeah, found, very related to this. Very related yeah. to this, yeah. The Justice Department recently found that Yale University violated Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, right? And, and more specifically, they said that Yale grants substantial and often determinate preferences based on race to certain racially favored applicants and relatively and significantly disfavors other applicants because of their race. More specifically, even than that, is that the way that they looked at it is that for the great majority of applicants, Asian Americans and white applicants have only one-tenth to one-fourth of the likelihood of admission as African American applicants with it comparable academic credentials. Right. So 10% to 25% the likelihood that an Asian, to just stay on Asian for a second, yeah. that an Asian applicant, an Asian applicant has 10 to 25% the likelihood than an African American applicant in Correct. this case to get into into Yale, to get into Yale with the same scores with the same scores and the department now, of justice is, is one of the things that we didn't include them. on here is that it um it also speaks to the volume of students of these different groups that are applying to a university like Yale right so part of the reason that this also happens is that you have a lot of more uh, applicants way more i mean multiple more of both white applicants and Asian Americans yeah. uh, applying to school like Yale. So just to go, go over the, the actual enrollment data, mm -hmm. I thought it would be interesting sort of to think about this relative to that number, is that we looked at 2019 Yale enrollment data, and the in terms of the student population, about 53%, a little bit under, uh, were white. About 19.3% were Asian. Remember, if we think about so it's like population three, size, so like 300. three times, it's over like a 3x. Times, yeah. Over a 3x index. Uh, blacks uh, under eight, which is 7.7%. And the Hispanics at 13.3%. So in that context, both black and Latino still significantly under-indexing their uh, percentage population. I mean, black is not, it's not exactly half, but it's about 60%. Uh, for Latinos, it's a little bit better, maybe about 70% uh, relative to the, to the population. So, yeah, the interesting thing here is, by the way, and this thing is still being kind of worked out. So there's a lot of still legality and issues being, as it relates to the whether or not that's how accurate that assessment is from the Department of Justice. But regardless of that, I think the issue of what happens when you overcorrect or the issues that can, can create when you're trying to correct the possible issue. But I, I, yeah, I'm curious to hear more from you in terms of... And by, and, and by the way, one other stat that we didn't talk about just in general in terms of this divide within the diverse groups um, is household income too. So the average, um, the real median household income for uh, for an Asian household is $87,000 uh, in 2018, compared to $70,000 for whites, to $51,000 for Latinos, $41,000 for African American or black. So yeah. the average Asian me median household income is more than two times that of a black uh, household income, and almost two times that of a Hispanic household income, right? So that's another real metric there, um, which I think plays a role in all this in all this question. Look, I, this is a tricky one because I think that you can, like logically, to me it follows that you do one of either two things. You basically agree to have this sort of quota-based system and not take money from the government, which apparently, I don't know if you can do that legally, but one of the big things sticking in this DOJ thing is that these guys get federal support. Right, they get right? federal funding, yeah. So you can go this way of saying, hey, we want our student body to look this particular way. And so long as you're not violating any federal laws, but you've got just the way that you recruit, you do it that particular way and so be it. The other way is, no, we're going to accept you know federal money and we're going to abide by Title VI and all these different things. And so when people apply, if I've got 100 applications in front of me, and they have, you know, the same general, you know, criteria or educational 
whatever, it follows to me that you can't just exclude people because they have they happen to have a certain race background or skin tone. If their scores are higher, but they happen to be from that protected group or that that group, you can't just exclude them because that to me is exactly the same kind of racism if we we're doing it in the other way, which is, you know, excluding someone just because they've got, yeah, you know. That's the that's a tricky part, right? Because first of all, race can be used as a determinant factor for figuring out who gets to, uh, so so who gets to, to go into any university. Harvard has sort of had a similar issue, but they were uh, they they were able to kind of get past it. The question though becomes in what you just described, right? So on the one hand, I love the thought of it being completely based on meritocracy, right? Whoever has the best scores, highest scores, should be able to go into whatever university I mean, if is. that's your school's thing, maybe your school's thing isn't about super well, uber yeah, academics. Right, you so know? that's kind of what I was going to get yeah. into, right? But when you think about the value of an education, I think having well-rounded, diverse points of view, having the opportunity to be able to, as a student, grow and learn, not just from your teachers, but from other students, part of it does, is tied to having access to other experiences that you didn't grow up having. So there's actually real value of having a more diverse student body so that the students in general can actually learn more as a result of it, as opposed to just having simply just the smartest kids going to school. I agree. I agree. But then why not set that in your qualifications? Why not say, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to add GPA, extracurricular activity, you know, all these other different things that we currently have. But we're also going to add things like, I don't know, maybe doing outreach in urban centers. Maybe we're going to add athletics as a requirement. Maybe we're going to add all these different things, which give you a better shape of that diversity. But if you're way over indexing on academics and the academics come in the same for all these people, and the only reason I'm not getting in, even though my score is better, is because of my race, that's just wrong. Yeah. That's I, just wrong. I think it just speaks to how difficult it is to 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 basically manage that once you introduce that that sort of element into the conversation. Because I, mean, I think the point yeah. that you're making, you're you're right, but okay, let's let's play that forward. Let's say you do look across the board and what you find is that a lot of these applicants, both white and Asian applicants, just just do better in school, just have better grades. Now we can go back and say, well, where do they grow up? What is their household income? What kind of access to classes, tutors do they have that other kids don't have? So what you end up with is a university that looks like it's maybe 70% uh, white and 30% Asian. And that's what you get because those were the best, best students that applied that specific school year. Yeah. Like, are, are that, is that student body better off or worse off I than having a more representative version of what this country actually is. I personally believe that a richer representation of points of view, perspectives, race, physical abilities creates the best atmosphere for all excellence, whether academic, business, or otherwise. However, we're talking about specific organizations who set their criteria for people that they want to be there, right? So to me, this is about, this is an issue about the specifications or whatever, the criteria for the student body at Yale University. And I believe that needs a little bit of a look. Like what is being, um, you know, rewarded or considered? I mean, obviously academics, but right. obviously extracurricular activities. But what other things have these people, again, done, you know, work, in, you know, feeding the homeless? Have they gone, you know, cleaning up beaches? Yeah, have they, yeah. What are the things that they've done which can kind of, inc- you know, add to that diversity and not put everything on this idea of academics because on the academic side, it just doesn't look right. It doesn't work to me. It just excluding folks. Well, and, and I think this is the reason why when this looks like this comes out, it is controversial in the sense that the universities are looking at multiple parameters yeah. that comes to who actually gets to go in that go beyond just the academics. But when it comes down to it and you do a little analysis, you figure out, well, how many of those kids fall into this category regardless of economics, economic status, right? Then you find yourself in a situation where it's it's pretty easy to point to, especially in a case like I think it actually actually speaks maybe more to the Ivy League culture in terms of kinds of uh, of of communities that really value having their kids go into an Ivy League school and why there's probably so much overrepresentation and just applying to begin with. But how do I reconcile that with the old kind of saw about well the reason that Asian kids do better is because they're the sort of the the really studious kind of you know, minorities and everybody else is in kind of a different bucket because I don't believe that that's an inherent thing. So how do you reconcile those two things, right? Because 
we're still talking about 5% of the population, mm-hmm. right? Or roughly 5 5 to 6% of the population ending up in these really disproportionately higher, you know, kind of segments within these either schools or what have you. And it's tough to say, well, you know, that's just how those communities and families bring up their kids and there's this Ivy League thing and there's more of a, you know, focus on it and not end up saying, well, they're just in a different sort of class of diverse people. Do you know what I mean? Like, I just think yeah. it's, it kind of leads you to these uncomfortable sort of conclusions. By the way, the other thing that it does is it makes you understand how broad the idea of Asian is because when you break it down right. and you look it's, at South Asian, you look mm-hmm. at Japanese, Chinese, and these are, there's like dozens of different, you know, places that constitute the category and there may be a lot of nuance in between each of those, those different I, ones. I think what it maybe more, more speaks to you is the, the challenge with the oversimplifying thought that the second you call someone or you label a person or a group as a diverse group, that it has the same sort of implication as anyone else that falls in that category, yeah. right? Even, I would say, one of the things that you look at here as, as well is that when we think about the students that are even black or Latino that are here, just because someone's black or Latino doesn't mean that they grow up in the exact same experience. I mean, there's a lack of depending on who they are, who their parents are, what their uh, household income, is they may have more access to resources, schooling, et cetera, than some of the Asian American kids. Like, this, there's nothing to say that that's not the case, right? Because... When you break it down simply by ethnicity, you're sort of ignoring all of the other social economic factors that play a massive role of whether or not a kid is well prepared or or even more prepared than other kids to be able to go in. I'll give you a little simple example. Um, when I was, uh, um, you know, when I was applying or when I got into undergrad, um, I studied uh, mechanical engineering, right? And one of the things that I found the first year, you tend to do like all your basic sort of classes that everyone takes. Uh, I came into a school, which was UC Santa Barbara, where the majority of kids that I knew uh, in high school, they were taking calculus two, right, is what, what it was. In my high school, the highest, no matter how smart you were, the highest you can go was pre-calculus. I was basically three classes behind, and from a math standpoint, as all the other kids that were coming to school with me. Now, this has nothing to do with how smart I was or anything. It just simply, the school that I, that I went to, it just like capped off at pre-calculus. And all these kids had literally two or three years ahead of me in terms of math class, right? That was a massive disadvantage that, that in terms that I had. Now, if I was simply being judged by how high my grades were relative to my level of difficulty in math, and that was a determining factor, there's no way I get in. Now, once going in, I actually did significantly better than a lot of the other kids in the sure. same calculus classes. But that's why it is, I think, challenging to break it down. And maybe the better way to think about it is less about only thinking about ethnicity, but more about looking at social economic background in terms of what kind of opportunities these, you know, these kids have and then using that as a, as a, as a basis to be able to better determine yeah. how do you have a good mix or representation of a school that gives you a more rich experience to the kids there because it really is not just about the kids with the best, best grades. Otherwise, you have a whole bunch of kids that, that probably act and think pretty similar to each other. And then also, we get a chance to grow, expand their their, their sort of their mindset. My perf- like my panacea university setting example, and I've never been an administrator, and I've only worked in the sort of private sector. But if I could draw it up, my emphasis would be on well-rounded humans. That would really be my emphasis from all backgrounds, all walks of life. Does that include academics? Absolutely. Does it include other things? Yeah. You know, physical things, athletics, et cetera. Does it include community-based things? Yes. Does it include thinking about people other than myself? Yes. Like I would add all those things, but I think we're living, you know, and I don't know again the depth of these, these sort of requirements, but my guess is that we're putting a lot more emphasis on, you know, these, these different categories and groups. And we're kind of, you know, cutting our nose off to spite our face in some cases. Yeah. Um, I think that actually is a, is an interesting, you know, you brought up this sort of diversity within this group, kind of an interesting segue to, to the next topic of discussion, um, which is around kind of the media's role and the, st- the type of stuff that's out there that we consume every day and how well it actually represents the diversity within groups, right? So we talked about the Asian cohort. 
which I can imagine, you know, my Asian friends and, you know, brothers and sisters cringing even when we say Asian, because what, what does that even mean? That means a- Indian. It means Chinese. It means Korean. It means Japanese. It means Nepalese. I mean, there, these are different cultures and countries and completely different yeah. things. So we don't know the diversity even within the Asian community. Um, but I don't think it's just for Asian. I think that it applies elsewhere as well. Yeah, for sure. And I think one of the things that we wanted to talk about is, you know, to your point, the, the role that really media should play or, or not in representing those diverse voices that are a minority, especially within diverse group. So a, probably a great place to start because it's one that I think is, is by its nature a little bit of controversial in the fact that you just don't see enough of it or see much of it is as it relates to black conservatives or African-American conservatives. Um so maybe that one you could talk a little bit about. I know you mentioned Joe Collins before. Well, I think, you know, so I live in Los Angeles and I live in, I live in the congressional district that has been governed by Maxine Waters, very prominent Democratic, um, you know, congresswoman for many, many years. And this year running against her is a man by the name of Joe Collins, who is himself black, but is not a, de- is not a Democrat, right? He's a Republican. I'm not sure exactly how conservative he may be. But, um, but it, it just, it brought to light this fact that, you know, you see and hear so little of black conservative voices, at least in the mainstream media. And I also just had a, an experience, which we talked about earlier, but just a few weeks ago in downtown LA, there was a march by a group of black conservatives. And I had heard about this, um, on social media and I went to try to find media coverage of this because we, our, our office, where we were officing was right next to where this actually went down. And I couldn't find a thing about this event. It was like it had never actually happened. Um, and so it just brought to mind for me that there are these, you know, other voices within these groups that are interesting to listen to. I mean, the best example of that to me is the fact that when we think of uh, a media entity like Vice, right, known for its punk journalism, they had a series that they stopped doing, at the, I think, at the end of last year, but it was called Minority Reports. And the idea of Minority Reports was basically these, you know, in the spirit of Vice, this kind of punk journalism, outlandish, crazy view of things that are just ridiculous, right? That's how, that's how Vice works, is they give you the inside look on something that's really out there and crazy and weird. But what they were doing was, in Minority Reports, was having black conservatives sit and talk with black liberals. Let me, and I'll tell you why that's interesting and I'd love your response. But what I think that's interesting is number one, an entity like Vice, known for its, you know, global groundbreaking kind of journalism and oftentimes controversial topics, right? Was thinking that this, a conversation between black people who happen to have different political beliefs, falls in the category of punk journalism. That's the first thing that that caught me by surprise. And if we've come to the point in time in our society where that's actually true. The second thing that I thought was interesting was I heard a different perspective in this conversation from the one that at least I feel I typically hear um, about the way that black people feel about political issues. So it was interesting to me on those two sides. But if for no other reason, it just made me aware of other people who may not think exactly the same way. Yeah, I think it's super telling that, to your point, that that is the forum that is required in order to have this type of conversation where you're having, you know, a, a real, not just conversation, but like a real different points of view as it relates to topics that are generally understood or generally believed to be sort of thought of in one certain manner than another. I think part of it, though, it, you really, have, you do have to think, go back and, and, and talk about how the, you know, for especially black, the black Americans, how they tend to vote. And what is, tends to be the political leaning, right? So I think we, we've maybe talked about this, but uh, in the last presidential election, about 8% of the black American vote went to Donald Trump. So about 92% went uh, to Hillary, Hillary Clinton. And at least from what you've, I've seen some of the polls recently, that seems to kind of hold. It, it hasn't really changed that much. So part of the challenge here that I think is there is not that there isn't uh, conservative voices within the black community because there are. Right. And, and, you know, I would actually even use uh, Kanye West at this point as, as being one of the most prominent. Uh, I don't even want to call him a conservative voice. I don't know what you call him at this point. I don't but, think he would call himself conservative, but I know what you mean. Just somebody yeah, who's like, bucking the trend of orthodoxy. Right. So exactly. Not really right. Um, there, there is a, there is that. But the question, though, I still that I still have is when it represents. Frankly, such a small percentage of the overall group. How much. Should it get? How much coverage should it get? How much amplification should those voices actually get 
in the broad sort of media space. Now, to your point, if it's a case where people believe that is non-existent, that's a problem. But sort of how much to index, I think, is what I, at least the question that I have. Yeah. So I think one thing is remember that when we talk about the 89% and the 8% that you brought up, that is of people who voted, right? So that doesn't represent the entire 13% of the US population, which is black. And my question would be, you know, if you, if you kind of factor in the percentage of that 13% that voted, um, how does that extrapolate out in terms of actual number of people, right? And then there's also a number of people who are undecided, a number of people who don't vote and whatever, or who maybe not haven't picked a political party. So uh, that's number one. Number two is I would argue right now that not even 10%, just to use that 10%, I would argue that not even 10% of a non-black progressive point of view is commonly seen in media. Now, have I measured every video and audio? No, I don't. No, I can't. But I think most people would say that that not even a low double-digit figure like that. And I believe the vote has gone as high as 11 or 12% for for past Republican candidates. And um, and by the way, historically too, the black community was overwhelmingly uh, Republican up until a certain point in history, right? I think around the 60s. So it's not like it's never happened before. These things tend to evolve from time to time. But my point is that I don't think it's proportional now, even on the basis of the 10%. I think it's invisible now. Yeah. Um, and maybe again, Kanye, who I don't even think would call himself a conservative, I may be wrong, but I think that is as high profile. And I believe most people sadly treat him as somebody who's like off his rocker. And part of it is, you know, he has had some issues in the past. Um, none that seem to me to affect his ability to rationally think, but nevertheless, he has some of those things, but they've, to my mind, he's been kind of dismissed in his political views, not even really taken seriously. Yeah. So even though he's popular, I don't I think, think there was, like, he, you know. he's gone through different phases. He went, it went from initial shock value that he was right. so vocal uh, with, I think ideas that will be considered pretty conservative. He was very vocal about his support for Donald Trump, very vocal with the idea that, that black people should be, maybe it's, I think maybe it's more of a, a point against the democratic party is that, you can have free thought and not just be a Democrat, right? And it was very vocal about people need to think for themselves. Um, he's very conservative things like abortion, right? Although that's obviously it's a, it's a conservative thought, not necessarily Republican, but it tends to fall more within that yeah. area than not. Um, but I guess one of the questions here, or yeah. I guess one of the things to talk about is that I agree with you that in general media, the the conservative voices of minorities are not very obvious, right? And I know we're talking specifically about, about the black community. So maybe let's talk about what are some of the places, the forums, the people that are being very active that do fall in that yeah. conservative sort of forum, right? So the first that sort of came to mind for me is Candace Owens, right? And for those that you know that may not be familiar with who she is, she's an author, a vlogger, pretty active on YouTube, political commentator. She is a person that has been, uh, you know, especially within the, 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 the Trump uh, uh, administration, very pro-Trump. Also big, a big advocate of just black and brown people leaving the Democratic pro- Party. I think that was, I think she actually co- coined it the Blexit uh, in 2018. And when you talk about having a diverse point of view, she definitely has had that uh, in terms of she's taken a number of controversial positions. There's everything from women's rights, uh, LGBTQ rights, opposes welfare, rejects climate change. Um, got a little bit into hot waters, released some comments she made about Hitler. Um but probably most recently, maybe one that people have heard of her from, is that she was basically pretty vocal about her position of how she saw the the situation with George Floyd, right? Yeah. And specifically not seeing him as a martyr and calling him not a good person and really focusing on his criminal record and, and overall kind of rejecting the idea of racial biases amongst police. So those are some of the areas where she's been very, very vocal on someone that has a very strong conservative voice that is, you know, that is black. Uh, but that sort of is, it sort of falls more in the category of just pure digital uh, YouTube. As someone that has been, even President Trump has been, I think, very vocal about her support, his support of her. I, I'm not entirely sure how much of a role she plays in something like Fox News, but has been in, in a number of those sort of conservative circles. Yeah. So Candace Owens, and again, this is going to be a, a current 
a theme in our conversations um, is my guess. But so it's important to go back to the sources and actually look at the actual material um, and what people actually said, you know, and with respect to, you know, her position on a number of these different issues, um, there's definitely a lot of spin relative to what she's actually talked about and what gets played back. And I'll, I'll give you an example of that. But let's talk just really quickly about George Floyd. I went back and I listened to an episode of her podcast where she actually had a uh, uh, another kind of an, inst- an inst- maybe an uh, Instagram influencer, I guess you would call him, a guy named Kingface, who is also an African-American conservative, former gang member, um, who's very active in the community. Super interesting guy, just in, in, in his own right. But she, you know, spoke at length about the George Floyd um, situation. And what I took from that conversation was that she was saying not that what happened to him was right, because she clearly and unequivocally said that it was absolutely wrong, that it was, you know, shameful, that it was, an, you know, murder, all the different, you know, things to clarify her position. But she made a clear point to say that she disagreed with the idea of martyrizing or, or creating a martyr out of somebody who had not been good to the black community. That was her position. Basically, somebody who, in her words, not mine, had terrorized the black community, had sold drugs to the black community, had um, you know done some sexually explicit things to people in the black community, who was locked up multiple times for abusing um, black women and doing like there was a, a, a an episode where he actually held a pregnant uh, woman at gunpoint. So all of these things, her context was, why is that person a hero? because of how much they've hurt our black community. Those were her comments. Now, it's, you know, it's a, we've talked about this before. There's a time and place for things, right? There's a time and place for things. There's like prudential judgment says that when the country is in an uproar seeking, you know, uh, understanding justice and being heard, that's not the time to bring up certain things, right? When somebody falls down, you don't, tell them their shoes are untied. You pick them up, then you show them how to tie their shoes, right? There's like a sequence to this stuff. And if she's guilty of anything, and I wouldn't even say guilty, it's because she's a commentator and this is what she does, but it's of being, having a real hard edge about some of these things, maybe at the wrong time. But I also understand her perspective, which is no one is talking about these things. I'm kind of the only one, you know, kind of in quotes. I'm not saying she said that, but that's how I envision. And so I have a lot to talk about and I got to get it all out, right? So I, I do feel that there's some of that, but with respect to the George Floyd comments, I can tell you what I heard because I went back and actually listened to the podcast. Yeah, and I think that these comments, she's talked about it multiple times. I think the initial one about not kind of a martyr was actually from a Facebook post where she talked about this the first time. Having said that, hearing you even describe those comments, I can see why this will have an immediate, very negative reaction because it's almost making the, well, it's kind of okay then that this happened, Right. Because when you start to look at who the person is, and this always happens, I think it happens with victims all the time. When someone's a victim of a crime, you start digging into, well, that person, what did they do that maybe this makes it okay, right? And I think that's the issue. What makes him a martyr is not that he did or did not have a criminal record. What makes him a martyr is that the police officers are not judge and jury to be able to execute the guy on the spot, regardless of what background criminal history had, regardless of how much he had terrorize the black community or any other community. That's what makes him a martyr. And I think that's a, a great sort of point of distinction of what makes her voice controversial. But to me, the, what's actually interesting is that there is these kind of voices. I mean, that's a, a super controversial stance that yeah. I would even say that because she is black, she could probably get away from it, maybe a little bit more than other people. Yeah, but she's been called a Nazi and everything. I mean, well, yeah, like she because doesn't get away made, with anything. Exactly. Yeah. But the reason she's been called a Nazi is because of the comments she made about Hitler. No, right. no, 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 no. Yeah, and we'll, there's, we'll, there's we'll, get to, we'll get to that next. But, um, but just, to, just to finish, just to finish the thought on this though, and even, and this is a part where I think words are really important to define. Words mean things. A martyr is someone who dies for the, well, te- from a technical standpoint, a martyr is somebody who dies for their belief in God, who is, who, that, that's what a, the original definition is. Someone who's been martyred because of their religious belief. But let's apply it in the political realm. In this case, a martyr would be somebody who died for the black community. Let's say maybe even one of the protesters who's out there protesting and they get gunned down or they get run over with a car, whatever. That would be more equivalent calling somebody a martyr because they died for that thing that they're doing. What she was saying is this person 
terrorize those people. So you can say that their killing was wrong and you can say that they shouldn't have died that way. But her point is that isn't a martyr because they weren't fighting for the thing. They were fighting against the thing. That's what she means. And I think that's important to define what words mean because I don't view it as martyrdom either. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know who's called him a martyr. Uh, honestly, uh, maybe you're right. Maybe I, maybe that I think hasn't she's been the first, uh, that I remember. She thinks she's the first to actually bring it up. Yeah, I will still go back to the point: is what he what he his death represents what's all what is entirely wrong with dynamic that many black and brown people feel, and what's at risk whenever they engage police is that death is a real possible outcome. That's it. Yeah. Like, you can talk about them being criminals or not, but that's kind of the whole point of having an actual judicial system that is there to try people, right, is that you should be able to get to that point. You, not that it should just happen where in the moment of, of engagement with police, all of a sudden you are, are at serious risk of actually dying. So I think that's the... What I see as, and as and I think martyrdom, you're right, is maybe something that, that in her case she's... In, she's attributing to the thoughts of George Floyd or whatever. But, I, you know, there, there was mention on that podcast that I heard about, you know, kids having T-shirts of him and things like that. And maybe that's more pop stardom than martyrdom. Um, but either way, that, that was her pers- pers- perspective. Really quick on the Hitler thing, because I do think this has been going around for quite a while and it's actually not accurate. She, um, specifically the quote is in respect to nationalism. And here's our exact yep. words. She says, I actually don't have any problem at all with the word nationalism. I think that the definition gets poisoned by elitists that actually want globalism. Whenever we say nationalism, the first thing people think about, at least in America, is Hitler. The problem is that Hitler wanted to globalize. He wanted everybody to be German, everybody to be speaking German. To me, that's not nationalism. In thinking about how we could go back to go bad down the line, I don't really have an issue with nationalism. I really don't. So a reference of Hitler, at least as I'm reading it, is that people hear the word nationalism and think him, but right. he wasn't trying to do that. He was trying to make everybody German as opposed to say, have pride, you know. So anytime she, you mention Hitler in a context like this, especially with her, because she's not speaking to that, at least in my view, that same kind of thing that you hear everybody else saying, you're going to get you you may you run a risk there of of getting attached in the wrong way. Yeah, but so I, I think the reason why she then had to come back and sort of reclarify her statements was because even in how you just phrase it, which is what she said, what that misses the point is even if Hitler had no intent of going beyond the borders of Germany, his goal within the German country was for people to be pure Aryans, and that's where you run into a problem. Even if there was zero interest of going beyond the borders of 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 the of the country, which I think is a little bit what she's talking about in globalism. Right, going beyond that, you still have the massive issue is that it basically is a move towards getting rid of anything this that is different, that is not diverse. And I think that's what people, you know, respond to what feels like once again, it could be a case of maybe using the wrong example, uh, as a way to prove the point. So I understand what she's trying to say in terms of globalism versus nationalism. Uh, but when well, the second you add in Hitler mm-hmm. into that mix, yeah, of course, because he came it's, in and clarify that point, right? He's, of, of he's, condemning him first yeah. of all, and then sort of clarifying. But that's the part where, to your point about language being really important, I think that's where it just it feels sloppy at best. I think it's definitely not maybe worded properly or whatever. But you know, if anything, in that same conversation, we have to read every word she said. But she identified properly Hitler as a socialist. I mean, he was the leader of the National Socialist Party of Germany, right? So I think the point in bringing her up, bringing him up, and again, it's a low, it's a no percentage thing when you bring up the, the most hated person and rightfully so <laughs> in human also, history. I have a good argument after that. The odds, tough. it's going to go right <laughs> downhill. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. but, um, but I do, I don't, I do think it's very unfair to associate her with anything like that, especially for a black woman. I think it's ridiculous to assume, to, to assume any kind of pro-Hitlerian perspective, yeah, especially no, I, I agree with you on said. that. Yeah, so, but, but then the question with her, and which we could get into right to the next one, which is, what role does that voice, what role should that voice play in media in general? And where is the starting point, right? So as an example, there's another group, uh, or, or uh, the two women, Diamond and Silk, who are also vloggers, commentators, and were previously Fox, no, Fox News contributors, yep. right? They recently came out and they are making news because they were fired by Fox News. And in part, the reason they got fired, they say, is for actual uh, racist uh, uh, elements because 
they had made many sort of controversial conspiracy theories, mm-hmm. especially related to coronavirus, as calling it being man-made, sort of talked about the role of 5G towers and spreading coronavirus, um, questioning the count of COVID cases to specifically hurt the Trump campaign. And the, their argument specifically is that, well, yes, they were talking about these these theories and talking about them. They got fired. Uh, but yet, did. when you look at the main anchors of Fox News, who also made very similar claims, they're still there. So from their point of view, is they're getting fired for being black women that are bringing up these issues, and these big personalities that are actually part part of this 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 platform are not are not having the same sort of impact that they are. And you know, this is a very colorful pair of commentators. If you're not familiar <laughs> with them, I mean, that's just one way to <laughs> yeah. to talk about it. But you know, look, I, I I don't know all the the specific quotes and the attribution here. I, I do think on some of the things that they've gotten into hot water for, they probably have some good evidence to point to on the coronavirus as an example. You know, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, was talking about very convincingly that there was good evidence that the virus was actually originated in a laboratory and not in a natural environment. And that's like ABC News mainstream media kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So when somebody like that is saying that, maybe you get yourself, you kind of take it for granted. Now, obviously, it's a lot more, it's more nuanced, it turns out, than just that. But, um, and the other stuff on 5G and, and that attribution, I don't know. What I can tell you is that I have seen those ladies testify in front of Congress. I forget exactly when, when they were that they were doing it. And, you know, their perspective was pretty simply put, it was, you know, we've been Democrats our whole life and we've looked around and seen what our cities look like and kind of what they've come to. And we want to give, you know, Donald Trump a shot. Now they've become very, or had at least, I don't know if still, become very zealous in their support of Trump to the point yeah. where, you know, that was part of their shtick, frankly, I would call it, like just being very boisterous and like mm-hmm. shutting people down and whatever else. But at least as I understand the reason that they got into it was they kind of looked around, they didn't like what they saw, they wanted to take a chance, and now they like what they're seeing from Trump and so therefore are supportive of him. At least that's how the, the conversation goes. Uh, the reason I like it is for the same reason that I like the Vice stuff is because I like to hear from a variety of perspectives and points of views. The one thing I haven't mentioned, Jesus, and I think it's really important, is that you and I have experience working with political parties and working in D.C. and working with advertisers and stuff like that. And what I always found amazing was that the left of the spectrum and the political machine, people who are buying ads and all that stuff, the left side of the political spectrum tends to take the black community as in the bag. Like, we don't need to work that hard. We've got them. And the right side of the equation thinks of them as not gettable, so why try? And then what you end up with is, like, kind of nobody doing anything. And that, to me, is not a good idea. And and I think if, yeah, I mean, honestly, that's actually the biggest issue with all of this, right? Um, If we really bring it back to why this is important, is because you do have these, listen, whether I agree or not with what Candace Owens says or, you know, Diamond and Silk and... Actually, doesn't matter. I think the point is that it does speak to the fact that you have a group that is a lot more diverse in thought than what they get credit for. And the unfortunate downside is exactly what you just described, right? It's a group that tends to get ignored and only called upon when it's convenient, right? And that's the thing of the biggest issue that you, that you have here. I think that as it relates to what role these voices should have in media, I do think that there should be more amplified, more opportunities for them to speak. My only argument would be is that that really should start first within the conservative sectors because that's where their voice is. If you take away who they are as being black um, or whatever other, you know, this is they may, they may be, and you start with the fact that they have a conservative point of view, it would make sense, at least for me, that that's the place where they start with is having a stronger presence, voice uh, in the, the same kind of outlets that are more conservative in, na- in nature. And, and I think that's a good, a good starting point to actually look at that because – Otherwise, they're going to be out of sight, out of mind. 100% agree. And I think on that, we can try to sum things up. What do we think um, our bottom line is with, with respect to uh, who speaks for diverse Americans? I think it's a uh, very complicated question of who actually speaks for, for, uh, for uh, diverse Americans. I think it's, a, it's actually a lot more to do with, uh, with your cultural experience that you've lived through more than anything else. I think when you actually look at the breakout of ethnicity, uh, race, et cetera, is the reality is when you start double clicking into some of those, you start realizing pretty quickly that just because someone shares the same ethnicity as you doesn't mean they shared your same experience. And, and I think as part of a nuanced approach, we have to be much better as an industry to create the forms and opportunities for to have better representation of cultural experience as opposed to just checking the box and saying, well, we have 
you know, 10 Latinos, five blacks and, you know, and six Asians. So we're good. And that's my fear with, uh, you know, taking an approach around diversity that's only about the HR function, because I feel that sometimes we have that risk or we run that risk of doing exactly that. The big takeaway for me is also that um, learning and having an intellectual curiosity and interest in learning about different groups is always a good idea. The example of Asian, uh, the Asian cohort is an example and the rich diversity that exists within it and better understanding that is a key to getting at, you know, some of these different answers or maybe just understand that there won't be an answer, but it, it does begin with a real understanding and double clicking into these diverse groups and not just assuming that they're this monochromatic, um, whole that all feels the same and has the same life experience. So that, that's also my takeaway. Great. So, um, we thank you guys for listening, ask you to share, bring uh, topics that you want us to talk about and tackle from different perspectives, and we thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Diversity Remix, please remember, first of all, to subscribe and help us to spread the word. Tell your friends, family, coworkers, and give us a five-star review. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your listening fix. And lastly, please remember to stop by blackbrown.us, the creator of this podcast, and take a look at our work and our approach at the intersection of diversity and business. The Diversity Remix is produced by Leo Gomez, with production services by Jose Manuel Durquidi and Luis Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Network. The Diversity Remix is a production of Black Brown. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.